I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, Kyle, Nathan, and I are joined by Michael Weaver, former All-American at Cal, USAM runner-up, Walker Cupper, and currently playing on the web.com tour. Michael, welcome on. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to do it. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for being here. Um, I guess we'll get started right away. I read some interesting stuff about you and... Uh, one of my favorite tidbits was that you were an elite level go-kart racer. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that and then what made you get into golf? Yeah. So my dad's always been into racing and, uh, I started down on six. My, my dad was probably a little bit crazy. Uh, one day just started driving go-karts. Uh, we had some friends that did that and I really liked it. Kind of, uh, was okay. I had to start and then you couldn't race, <clears throat> excuse me couldn't start racing until you're eight so for like two years i just practiced basically and got kind of good at it and then raced kind of all over california and yeah i was i was really into it it was it was a lot of fun i mean as you can imagine just racing go karts they probably went about like 55 or 60 and it's a bunch of like second grade third grade kids yeah so it was it was pretty serious like i think some of my parents friends probably thought my dad was out of his mind (laughs) and uh but no, I was really competitive at that. I did that until I was about 12. Um, I started playing golf when I was 10, so I had a little bit of overlap. I was try- racing and playing golf, uh, and eventually kind of my dad pointed out to me that I hadn't raced at one point in like six months or a year, I think it was, and that uh, I kind of needed to pick one or the other because if we were going to keep racing – I needed to, you know, be committed to that, and if not, like that stuff was, he wanted to get rid of the racing stuff, and if I wasn't going to do it, because it seemed at that point I was pretty, pretty set on playing golf. I started started when I was ten, just played for like a year, then started playing tournaments. I think when I was eleven, and summer, summertime became, you know, three tournaments a week, like a one day or here, a two day or there, all throughout Northern California. So racing kind of took a back seat. And I stopped doing that, yeah, when I was 12, and since then just been been playing golf. But I still still pretty interested in racing in general. Like I love Formula One. Uh, my dad still races as like a hobby. He has a open wheel race car that I've driven a few times. It's it's a blast. It's way more fun than golf. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. <laughs> Have you had more injuries so, from racing or golf? Uh, I was pretty lucky. Uh, never racing go karts was pretty common that you'd flip. And mm-hmm. I never, that never happened to me. So I, I never got hurt doing that, fortunately. And I've kind of had pretty good luck with golf too. I've never, knock on wood, never, uh, never really had a serious injury. I, I honestly can't remember a time where I've missed playing golf for more than really at all. Uh, you know, there's been maybe something here or there that's kind of bothered me, but I don't think I could directly attribute that to playing golf or working out related to golf. So I've been, been pretty fortunate 
to have been playing for, I guess, 16 years now. You hear about guys periodically, you know, their backs bothering them, wrist, whatever. I have been pretty fortunate nice. that I haven't had to deal with that. So uh, what are worse, uh, racing parents or golf parents? Oh, uh, man. Probably racing parents because they have a bit of a temper. Uh, golf parents are just crazy. You know, they might they might kind of like snap at their kid, but like racing, you saw some pretty like redneck stuff. Like, yeah, people literally lost their mind. It was it was pretty <laughs> embarrassing for the kids, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it was like the little it was equivalent to like the little league dad, but uh, I don't think you see that as much in golf, just because it's more. You know, you're competing against everyone else, but less so than in racing, I guess, and you, know, you can kind of directly attribute your bad play to yourself in golf. Whereas if someone makes a bonehead move racing, you could point the finger at them, you know, with some certainty. So you'd, you'd see occasionally, you know, people get pretty pissed, but not you don't really see that in golf. Yeah, I bet you could be like a you could drive like a jackass and like block people out and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in terms of uh, growing up, you grew up in Fresno. And mm-hmm. there's like a, a stable of talented golfers that have come from there, like Watney and yeah. Kevin Chapel, Bryson, you. You know what? What is it about Fresno? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I was talking with this, talking about this with someone recently. You know, you have the guys you mentioned, plus uh, Derek Ernst as well. Um, you know, Derek's a year older than me. Bryson is three years younger than me. So I played played quite a bit with Derek growing up. Uh, played a little bit with Bryson, but uh, we we're at a big enough age gap to like high school golf. We we're all in the same league, and we would I'd play with Bryson pretty regularly. But I was it was kind of a big age difference then. I wasn't real close with him, but no, we've I don't know what to attribute that to. It's kind of strange because like Kevin Chapel and I grew up playing the same golf course. Bryson and Derek grew up playing the same a different course, but the same one as each other. Obviously, Watney has had a good career. I don't, I don't know if it's just like a fluky thing. That's kind of when I was talking to a friend about this. I said it just seems like a, kind of like a fluke deal. Like my high school team, even we had four or five guys played Division One golf as well at you know various you know me, myself and one other guy both went to Cal, uh, Pace Johnson, and then a couple other guys played Cal Poly, Sacramento State. Um, I guess that'd be it, but no, we've had, it's just kind of one, maybe one of those things. It's more coincidence than anything. I, I can't say, oh, it's because we have all these great courses or facilities or whatever. We can play golf year round, but that's true for anywhere in California. Yeah, I, I remember I had Paul Goidos on, and he grew up playing this Muni in Long Beach that like Patrick Cantley and a bunch of other tour pros have all grown up playing. Which is it's kind of crazy how like sometimes they all everybody comes from like one course. Yeah, I could see that where, like, with our team at Cal, like, when you have a bunch of good players all together, everyone's very competitive. I know growing up, all of us were pretty competitive against each other. So maybe that has something to do with it. I could, when you're, it's it's better to be surrounded by people kind of, you know, similar ability there. You know, all of us are trying to get to, say, college golf at that point and push each other. And we all want to beat each other. So I'm sure that that counts for something. But, you know, beyond that, you know, in professional golf, to have, I guess it'd be five or six guys. You know, Watney's from Sacramento, but went to Fresno State. And then myself, Bryson, Derek, and Kevin, all four of us either, you know, 
right Derek and I on the web, the two others on the PGA Tour. That's yeah, it's just kind of like an anomaly more than anything, probably. So you mentioned your team at Cal, which was loaded. I mean, you guys yeah. had Hagee, Michael Kim, Max Homa, yourself. Um, what do you think you guys did at Cal to prepare you guys prepare yourself so well to play professionally? Um, I think kind of what I was talking about, like competition. We were mm-hmm. uh, we were all very competitive. None of us liked to lose to one another. We would, I mean, we had this we had this this practice facility at Cal. Uh, Got a course called Metropolitan Golf Links in uh, like Oakland, San Leandro, right next to the Oakland Airport. And we had this huge short game facility there. And there would be days where like nobody really wanted to go practice, but like Michael Kim and I, for example, would say play for you know trying to beat each other. And right. that was uh, that was that happened literally every day. We'd get, it's like we'd go hit balls for like an hour. And then have a two or three hour up and down contest or several contests within a two or three hour period. Um, I think that's just kind of that element where we were, everyone wanted to beat each other. We all hated to lose to each other. And that, that, uh, I think that was worth a lot because I know, say, like my recruiting class was myself, Max, and Brandon. And I think that I, for each of us, Cal wasn't necessarily our first choice going into the recruiting process you know you you have all these schools you're looking at like it wasn't like it was cal or then the other thing everything else would be settling like we i know i was interested say in ucla stanford like all the big schools in california i know hagee was kind of the same way with uh i think usc and max is kind of the same boat as us there's both of us as well like you know cal was on the list but it wasn't like with all those other programs at that time were higher ranked than us so it was kind of common you know we all heard it max brandon and i that from other coaches in the pac-12 like they kind of overlooked our class and then that was kind of a common thing with even with like michael kim as well uh, it was all these guys who might have been a little bit overlooked say michael kim was overlooked because he hit it short then max brandon and i had not really like uh hit our stride yet i guess you could say we had good junior careers but not great and then you know they certainly weren't up to par with our collegiate career so i think it was just you know we had a great group of guys we all got along really well and we were all really competitive and uh everyone was willing to work really hard i mean we never had to there was never anybody on the team that like you kind of had to light a fire under and like everybody knew where they wanted to be and uh believed that you know we were working we were doing all the right things to you know be a top 10 or top five team or the number one team in the country Mm-hmm. that's awesome and interesting you guys all had kind of a chip on your shoulder and yeah that'd be a good way to put it yeah yeah that's awesome something to prove what mm-hmm. what would you say in terms of making the transition from college to pro golf did you like overlook that was like that's been that like maybe is tougher than you would think like as an outsider um you know, I, this is something I took for granted in college that I've just kind of started to realize in the last say six months or so is everyone say like you play a lot more <clears throat> in professional golf than college golf. And I used to think, well, in college I played 13 or 14 tournaments in a school year and then six to eight tournaments during the summer. So playing, you know, 22, you know, say 22 events a year. And then my buddy, one of my a friend of mine from Cal who's a few years older said, well, I play 25 or 26 professional events a year and 
I kind of looked at that like that's ah, only like a couple more. It's not that big of a difference. But what you what I kind of overlooked was uh, in college, your events are four days at most. I mean, you you have a travel day, practice round day, thirty six, and then eighteen hole day, and then you go home that night. Whereas professional event, it's uh, you know you say you fly on Sunday or Monday. You play practice on Monday, Tuesday. You're either in the pro am or you're practicing on Wednesday, and then you play four rounds and you do that. It's so like last year I played 30 tournaments, and that's 30 weeks essentially. It's not, you know, it's not 30 call, you know, half college tournaments, half amateur events where it's they're shorter. So that was something that um, I think that's something that's overlooked is you know, people look at oh it's you know, play pro golf like you get to go and go to all these cool places which. That's true sometimes. I, I, I think if you took an honest look at like the web.com schedule, you wouldn't say like, I'm dying to go to Wichita, Kansas and Omaha <laughs> and Springfield, Missouri or <laughs> Springfield, you know, not, Illinois. I've, I mean, I've, I've played, you know, it's like the courses are good. The tournaments are well run, but that's like people think that professional golf is like, oh, you're going to all these cool destinations. You get to do cool stuff. Well, like the reality is like I'm – I'm, I'm going to try to make time to go to the Panama Canal this week because I've never been. But most weeks, like I'm not doing anything touristy. Maybe I'm just lazy about that or not. It's not that important to me, I guess. But most weeks, like there's just not there's just not a whole lot of time because you you, know, you got to play your practice rounds and then you practice and you work out and uh, whatever else you have to do to get ready to go on Thursday. I think that's something that's so easily overlooked is. The tournament is four days, but uh, you know, being ready to play a tournament involves a week, and you have to at the level that if you're not, if you haven't won on the PGA Tour, I guess the way I look at it is you need to play pretty much every chance you get because you can't really, you can't really like be complacent because it's so it's so easy to if you're like a rookie on tour, sorry, it's not easy. It's so difficult to get into events. You're kind of forced in your rookie year to play the events you get into rather than you know, picking your schedule, which you, know, you kind of have to take advantage of that. Then say in your second or third year, once you, you know, move up in the world ranking or if you win a tournament, then you're, then you can have that luxury. But I think that's something that is probably the most overlooked, even for guys who play golf necessarily in college, let's say, I'll say, Oh, I'm, I don't want to play more than two events a row in a row. And for an amateur schedule, it's like during the summer, it's like you guys you need to kind of get used to playing four or five in a row because you might have no status Monday into a web event and top 25, a few of them. And then all of a sudden, like I had a stretch this summer, I was planning on playing like a couple weeks on, a couple weeks off do that. And then like six, six tournaments over like a nine week stretch. And the weeks I had off, I Monday into a web event and combined that into nine straight weeks. And that, you know, after nine weeks, I was sick of playing golf, but that's kind of the nature of it. You know, you, you get, you have to, uh, you kind of have to go when you're hot and keep going. And that's, Speaking of playing a lot of golf in a small amount of time, obviously you had a great run at the uh, USAM at Cherry Hills. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that was that was kind of a surprise more than anything. I I knew I had been playing. I knew like my game was going the right direction. I was improving. I was working hard, but I was kind of having a bad summer uh, before that. I had I played really poorly at the Western at uh, North Shore, I believe like two weeks before and I was pissed at how I played and I was like, I went home and practiced a lot. And it's like, 
I hadn't really done anything too redeeming that summer, I felt like. So I figured, oh, hopefully I can, I'd qualify for the AM. That was really the only highlight, I guess. And I think that was, that was my second USAM. I played at Aaron Hills the year before. I missed the cut by one there, missed the playoff by one. So it's kind of like fired up to go to the AM. Uh, I didn't know anything about Cherry Hills in particular other than it was at altitude and in Denver. Um, I mean, I knew about, you know, the, like Arnold Palmer playing there and that I'm not, like, not a huge, like, golf like history junkie so that was that was about it and yeah i uh uh so i played common or like cherry hills first then played common ground um and i made like a double or a triple on my 10th hole at common ground i remember and was kind of i knew then i was probably outside the cut line and i want to say i birdied like three of my last seven or eight got in to the playoff which was 17 for 14 Bogeyed the first playoff hole, went on the next one, and then parred that and birdied the 12th hole at Cherry Hills. like a par three over water. It's like about 200 or so, or 210. Um, yeah, then I had, uh, I had quite the draw in match play, I felt like. I played a lot of guys who are doing really well right now. So I was, now looking back, it's kind of a cool uh, kind of a cool thing to think about. I played Zach Blair in the first round. Uh, I think I won two and one. Played Albin, no, no, no. Played Patrick Rogers in the second round. Uh, beat him, I think, two up. I played Albin Choi in the third round. And I never led that. I was trailing all day, 118 to get to a playoff, and then got up and down from a bunker, on the front bunker on one for birdie to win. So that was kind of dirty. I like felt like I stole that one. And then uh, quarters, I played Ricardo Govea. Plays on European tour now. Uh, semis, I played Justin Thomas, and then lost to Stephen Fox on the 37th hole. But all in all, no, it was like a, it was a sick week. I mean, I had my dad caddying for me. We had a blast. It was uh, obviously a uh, like a really cool experience for my dad and I to share together. He he uh, he'd caddy for me periodically, and just to for me and knowing that I was in the Masters in the U.S. Open the following year was a pretty incredible feeling. What was it like to play in the Masters and U.S. Open? Um, yeah, so the Masters, I was really nervous, really excited, obviously. Uh, it was, it was you know, everything I expected and more. I mean, the course was, you know, incredible. Uh, I went, made two separate trips out to Augusta prior to the week of the tournament. I went in January once, and then I uh, went in March. Yeah, so it was it was like kind of everything I had expected and more. I mean, it was just I got to play ten rounds or so prior to the tournament week. Um, one of those Ricky Fowler was there one day, so I got to play eighteen holes with him, which that was actually pretty helpful because I kind of got the like the wow factor, or whatever you want to call it, like shock and awe of playing with a big name player out of the way before the practice rounds or the tournament started. So. Uh, and then, yeah, I played some played practice rounds with some pretty good guys. Played with um, Watney and Luke Donald one day. Played with Duffner another day. I played with Fuzzy Zeller for Nineholes, which was hilarious. Um, and then I played the par three contest with him as well and Hubert Green, which was pretty cool. We we got put like not put on the clock, but we got told to stop signing stuff because we about fell about two holes behind because Fuzzy oh didn't miss a single person. And That's then. Awesome. Uh, I played with McElroy that day as well for nine holes and Robert Garrigus. So no, it was, it was, it was incredible. Then the U S open, um, that was pretty cool. I was, doesn't quite compare to the masters. I don't think, I think 
part of that just because it's so difficult to get into the Masters, whereas the U.S. Open, like, you can qualify for it every year. It's obviously difficult, but it's much more attainable. And uh, that was that was a pretty cool experience there, though. To, like, made, I made the cut there. Uh, didn't play great on Saturday, but uh, I had my dad caddy for me there as well. So that was also, like, another really cool experience. Like, finishing on Father's Day, having my dad caddy for me was uh, definitely a uh, – something pretty cool that we could share together. So no, I was, you, and I, I was fortunate. We got to play Marion too, which was, I thought a really cool course. And uh, it was interesting playing practice rounds there. Guys are saying, or sorry, TV was saying this course will be easy. It's short, whatever. I remember playing with Bill Haas and Nick Watney. And I was worried because I didn't think the course was that easy. And I asked Bill Haas, like, what do you think about this course? And I was going to be really concerned if he said, Oh, I think this is going to be pretty easy. And he goes, I don't know what the hell TV's talking about. These guys haven't <laughs> yeah. been out here. They haven't played it. And sh- sure enough, that proved to be right. I mean, one over one, it, the cut was eight over par. It was it was like a early 2000s U.S. Open. So if you were building a course that, that was going to challenge like the professional player, how would you build it to have a score, a winning score around par? Um... Probably have you know it'd, it'd be need to be kind of narrow like that's sort of the thing uh, off the tee, longer off off the tee, and then you wouldn't need longer you, like little or no rough around the greens like but you'd, it need you need you need stuff like Chambers Bay I feel like where it's just kind of ball runs away from the greens you get way below the level of the green because that's like that's the hardest to chip out of rather than if. I'm in four inch rough, like a foot off the green or five feet off the green, even as long as I'm not like really short sighted. It's not, doesn't usually get away from you too much there. You don't get like, you don't chip it up, have it roll back to you. That's, I think that's something that like long rough, that's like the difference between like what amateurs, like that just scares the heck out of them because they can't putt out of it. Whereas if it's like you got a collection area that's six feet below the edge of the green and it's really firm, like that's just really tough. Like you can't, Hard to get, hard to hit it high with spin. Uh, you can put it up, I guess, but I've never really liked doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think narrow is kind of kind of narrow off to long rough. That seems to be the uh, the thing that keeps guys from getting too low because you know if you, if you just bring the fairways in narrow enough, that's pretty much what they did at Marion. Uh, the rough was long around the greens as well, but. Um, yeah, you know, say if they had a bunch of runoff, say like a if it was like a Pinehurst around the greens, there I'm, I think it might have been tougher than just if you run one through the green, ball stops pretty close to the pin, you can kind of hack it out to ten or fifteen feet, hopefully, and be fine. Yeah, I always say like the worst thing for good players to see is the ball like rolling away on like approach shots, like the ball rolling in general, because when it's in the air, you pretty much know how far it's going to fly, how it's going to, yeah. but then. If it rolls away, that's when it like you know you've lost control. Yeah, you feel totally helpless. It's like you know, your, your ball. You see your ball start spinning back down a ridge. It's just like there's like no worse feeling. Mm-hmm. And okay. did uh, did you learn anything from your two uh, major championships you played in at uh, Marion and Augusta that you still use today? Um. Maybe more just like the confidence that I've like been there uh, to where if I'm 
back in that position, uh, it'll be familiar and that know that, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just something I, I you know, I, I'd be more comfortable next time. Like just the difference from the masters of the U S open, how much more comfortable I felt. I mean, when I teed off the first day at the masters, like I had, I had my first tee shot. I, I had no idea where it went. I was so nervous. I couldn't have told you <laughs> sort of thing. And then when I started at the U S open, I wasn't nearly as nervous. That was something that you just, with anything, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. So I think that was that was a big takeaway. And obviously, playing with I wanted to play with like big name guys, just more like curiosity than anything. See see what their game was like. And yeah, you know, I mean, I know that guys hit bad shots and all that, but when you watch on TV, you don't see that. So it was kind of cool to play practice rounds, see what, talk to some guys that I played with, see what they did, and you realize that it's not it's not like way different than what you're doing. They're just they're bad. It's just, it's just better. Like everyone can play. It's everyone can play really a golf. It's just, these guys aren't as bad when they're bad. What's the, uh, area of your game that you've had to work on the most since turning pro, like maybe an area that you didn't think was that, that you didn't think needed a lot of work, but you've had to work on a lot. Uh, probably like distance wedges. That's something that I've kind of starting like middle of college i started working more on i wasn't very good at at all early on in college so that's that's something just i guess it kind of started the end of my college career but that's something i've been pretty diligent about because i i don't hit it really far but i hit it above average i'd say and you know i have more more of those opportunities and you watch guys who and i'd want I'd, I'd play with guys in many tour events who like poof it hit it like 265 270 and we'd play these 6700 yard courses and they would just like rip it up and that was something that just like drove me freaking nuts and because it felt like i like an advantage i had was being taken away and being replaced with something i wasn't very good at so that was that's something that i i'm probably the most diligent about practicing right now that my coach and i are working on so you played in uh, Latin America. Speaking of some of the mini tours you played on, um, you have any crazy Latin American tour stories? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it mostly involves other not, other people doing funny stuff. I mean, right. I, I've had, I have one friend in particular who has played, as far as I know, at least two rounds without going to sleep. Um, <laughs> Yeah, went out one night, didn't go to bed, uh, showed up at the hotel. When I, was, he, he, I remember I was first off, this was in 2015, and he did it again this past year. <laughs> um, and let's see, in 2015, the one in 2015 was really impressive. We're playing this course in Argent, central Argentina, Cordoba Golf Club, it's called. It's kind of like Pasa Tiempo, but really narrow. That's uh, Cabrera's home course, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's final round and it's blowing like twenty all day. I'm like first off, so I I kinda like luck out with the draw. It wasn't that windy when I played. I played well. I think there were I shot two under and like four or five other guys did as well that day, and that was low score. My buddy went out with the guy I was rooming with that week, and the guy I'm rooming with says, Hey, I'm gonna crash in someone else's hotel room tonight so I don't wake you up when I get back. I was like, sick, thanks. Cause in Argentina, like you go to the bars like midnight or one you stay till the sun comes up pretty much and i was teeing off at like eight so i leave for the course my roommate's not there and i you know, i don't think anything of it and he went out with my friend who had like 30 and, uh, 
they got out at 30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, and he had to, like, grab his stuff and bolt to the course. No warm-up, nothing. Goes out. He and plays in the wind, shoots like one over. I, I, I think that's probably one of the best rounds I've ever seen. Or I didn't <laughs> see it, but like that I heard about. I mean, he was, I'm pretty sure he was, he probably wasn't hung over because he was probably still drunk when he teed off. Right. And, uh, that he did that again. I can't remember where. Oh, the Argentine Open. Uh, <laughs> man, he uh, loves Argentina. Yeah. Buenos Aires yeah. is a little bit better than Cordova. Yeah, yeah, he he yeah, did it. Yeah, this about two months ago. So. Oh wow! He apparently double hit his second, double hit a putt, and still shot one under <laughs> on the first hole. Jesus, so, this guy's I got the talent in the world. But the guy I'm staying with this week would room with him periodically, so he's laughing. Um, let's see. Then I don't know. It was just stuff like that, and then it was always. There was always like some hustle, like some caddy was wanting more money. There, I think, kind of the stuff, the stuff involving players was just usually more interesting because you got a bunch of guys like running around, kind of the wild west. I mean, these are we, you kind of forget their third world countries, and you know, it's there was I was never I never felt like concerned like safety wise, but it was just something you had to be aware of. What's uh What's worse, the the caddies on the Latin America tour or the scorers in the Bahamas for the web events? Oh man, the scorers in the Bahamas because at least in the Latin events, like certain countries, you know, you'll get decent caddies like Argentina, Colombia, or like the countries where their more golf's actually popular in South America. They will they'll have decent caddies. They at least usually at least know where to stand, which is <laughs> the biggest part of it, but. I mean, the people in uh, the scores in the Bahamas the last couple of weeks were outrageous. I mean, I uh, the first round at Abaco, the second event, my group, they, this, the rules official came up to us on the 12th hole. We teed off on 10. And he says, none of you guys made a hole-in-one on 10, right? As part three. <laughs> the, walking <laughs> scorer, the walking scorer put us all down for ones. <laughs> and I made a triple on the next hole. She put me down for a birdie. I was like, I, I wish, but oh, I hit, they the need those guys. Game. They should have the, that crew travel to every web.com event. Oh, it's like it's kind of like a waste that they do it. Like, because like in Latin America, scoring, we'd have they just get a volunteer every three holes, and you tell them your score, and it was never that bad. Like my parents would follow along, and you know, my dad would say, "Oh, they had you for a bogey on this hole, but you made a par, or vice versa." Like they'd be following my round every. They'd do three hole scoring, kind of like college. And that seemed to work good enough. Like it was never, you never had anything too wild. But I mean, the Bahamas, it's just like, I'm not really sure what the strategy is, but it's clearly not working. I mean, they kind of doubled down on it this year too. Cause I remember last year it was the same way. <laughs> That's what I was saying on Twitter is like, they just need to suspend the live scoring down there. Cause I remember yeah. I, I was tracking it last year and I was like, I, my buddy was like, they had him for like one under and he was like in fifth place. <laughs> And then he yeah, signed well, for like eighty four. Yeah, well, yeah I remember this that. year at the turn they'd take our card and like snap a picture with their phone, and I guess uh, they'd use that to put it into the computer. So you'd, I think you would see guys' scores correct at the turn. I'm guessing, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I saw like Lee McCoy tweeted during one of the delays the first the first week. It said something. He was like five over on the PJ Tour app, and he says, "I'm one under right now." It's like how I just don't know how he could get that far off. And 
Like, yeah, they're blowing it on par threes. It's just so simple. Like, there's not even that much to keep track of. Everybody get, like, having a home like, shot involved. But yeah, it's it really made you question, like, what what was happening in these people's minds? How did they get this job? <laughs> what uh, yeah. what was your favorite stop on uh, the Latin America tour? Um, I like I liked Lima, Peru, just because the course was course was good like good not great but it was just the event was really well run lima's kind of a cool city um bogota is good in general so we usually put decent courses there um i know the golf courses in argentina were good but i I, something about i just i was never really a huge fan of argentina they eat dinner really late there that was kind of a hassle uh you play at 7 30 in the morning and restaurants open at like 8 or 9 p.m so Probably, yeah, Lima, Colombia, those were good. Because um, you kind of got to stay in the city. When we're in Central America, you stay out in these like resorts. You have, you're like stranded. And it's, you kind of just, you're stuck. You can't really go out and check anything out. I, I mean, I was, I kind of cared. I was more interested in like the other stuff. Like at least kind of see, so I looked at, you know, playing in Latin America, going to, a, I was going to a bunch of places that I kind of figured I never would. So it's kind of interesting to check it out, especially the first year around in 2015. Like every every week was kind of a like a new adventure. Like go check this place out, just see what it's like. Um, and the courses were just really hit and miss there. Central America, you'd have all these like huge resort courses with lots of lakes and huge fairways and nothing special. And then Argentina, you'd have some good courses, but I kind of just Argentina was just kind of blah to me. What was the uh pace of play like out there i know that you know golf twitter had a uh yeah breakdown last night um, yeah i didn't i didn't see what happened but i mean i read about it apparently it took jb holmes four minutes to lay up and mm-hmm. I, I don't even i'm not sure what happened with alex norn but apparently it affected him he he had that second shot on 18 you know from whatever it was 230 and uh you know obviously he was going to go for it and jb took the four minutes to sit yeah. there and decide what he was doing so noren was sitting there like you know the tournament on the line twiddling his thumbs but right yeah i, I totally i get that part i'd be i would have told if i was in alex noren's shoes i feel like i would have at some point just ejected from the weight and told jb i'm hitting <laughs> yeah and, right uh, i'm a bit impatient so that would have driven me up the wall after about a minute and a half especially if he has an iron out laying up um Pace of play on Latin was usually pretty good. They did a decent job of policing it. I felt like, I mean, you'd know there's some guys who are just like a human rain delay that you, you knew going in. Like, if you have to look for a ball or something, you're probably going to get put on the clock. But I don't know. I mean, I, I get the pace of play thing. And pace of play down here, or sorry, in Latin America, it was fine. I mean, they they've you know they put you on the clock, but the way they police it in general, I just think is it doesn't really. Uh, they're not solving any problems They're You get put on the clock and everyone just speeds up. So if you get put on the clock, I think it's 10 times in a year on whatever tour it is. Uh, you started the fine, the fine start, fine start at 10 uh, timings, whether you're, you get a bad time or not. If you get put on the clock enough, you'll get fine. But the fine at each level is like kind of, it's kind of a joke. Like, say it's not worth. It's worth paying the fine and not if and if it doesn't affect you playing faster. You know, if you have to try to speed up and it affects, you know, you you, it costs you a shot or two. Like, that's worth way more because like I think in Latin they find you like two hundred fifty bucks. Web, 
I'm not sure what it is on the web. I know like PGA Tour, I think it's like ten grand, but yeah, you know, if that tenth comes, what's that? Yeah, a shot's worth way more. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, if if I get put on the clock and I'm in the second to last group at a tour event, like if they're gonna find me ten grand, like whatever, you know, that's right. Yeah, like one shot is could at that point is worth fifty to two hundred thousand dollars, depending yeah, on how high board you are, you know. So until they start like actually penalizing guys with strokes and if I don't know, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to this, but you know, I got put on the clock in the Bahamas and I know I'm not a really slow player and everyone sped up. So like, even if I was playing with guys who are slow, everybody sped up, like the rules official didn't witness anyone playing slow. It's kind of like, it just, it's a total waste of time. It seems like that the way, the way they're going about it, I don't know how, I don't know how you improve it, but I know that finding guys cash is not the uh, it's probably not the best incentive or disincentive to make them play faster. You know, I think look at how well AJGA did timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're like they instill like the fear of God in the kids. Like if you totally. got a, if you got one red card, you were you were hauling the next three or four holes. Like you never saw anybody got a, get a penalty, and obviously they couldn't find the kids and. Penalty strokes sure seem to work. I mean, we play AJGA events in four hours and ten minutes, and now we play. You know, I consider a four and a half hour round in a tournament be pretty quick. Yeah, that's the way I feel in am golf. I'm like, wow, played really fast today. I mean, I look at my like phone at the end of the round is four and a half hours. Four thirty, yeah. So, um, so uh, let's get uh, let's get out of here with some uh, some fun questions. No more like you know pace of play. <laughs> Um, we'll do, uh, we'll do one last question and then we'll get into overrated, underrated. All right. So we talked about your Cal team earlier. If you could take like one part of any of your teammates games, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. It's a toss up between Michael Kim's putting and Hagee's length. I figured uh, Hagee's length. Two good things. Good. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I'd probably take Hagee's length. I mean, I, I, I just, and Michael Kim puts it really good, but Hagee, Hagee, Hagee's a joke. I mean, he's, <laughs> I, I mean, my ball speed's like 175. His is like 187 or something. Like I'm like, I feel like I'd be top 20% ball speed and he's just 12 miles an hour faster. Like that's, that's a joke. He murders it. I uh, yeah. walked with him one day at, at a web event in Chicago and God, he kills the ball. It's uh, yeah. it's crazy. Um, all right, let's we'll do some overrated underrated. Um, overrated underrated Northern California. Like, it, it, for golf or just in general. In general. Uh, underrated only because Southern California is so overrated. <laughs> That's a good answer. Rel- all relative right. to California, it's underrated. Let's go overrated, underrated Panama, which you're there now. Oh, man. Probably underrated. Uh, I mean, this is like the perfect spring break stop. There's like, you can get yourself in all sorts of trouble. It's cheap. Um, yeah, there's, there's, you could have all kinds of fun here. And uh, yeah, that probably underrated. We'll have to see on Saturday who misses the cut there. <laughs> yeah, it might. It'd be a 
be a good week to be a fly on the wall for guys that see that probably. <laughs> How about uh, overrated, underrated, the crow's nest? Ooh. Um, oh, man. It's not over. You don't want to get yourself in trouble? Not underrated. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> Properly rated. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. the, politi- the political it's answer. Some, something something you have to do. But when I was there, I stayed there a couple nights. I'll elaborate. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I stayed there a couple nights. And it was like I just kind of hung out there. Like I, I'm, you know, I, I, I like golf. I'm, like, I'm not like a huge – the history part of it to me, it's it's cool. But like I, I, I don't have the greatest appreciation for it, I guess. And – I think it would have been, I would have, I might have felt differently. Like when I was there, the only guy that was staying there was the 14 year old kid, uh, uh, Guan. And he was like doing homework the whole time we were there. So I was like, I was just like laid up on the couch watching, watching TV on like the 13 inch TV they have in there, like hanging out to my, my family in the house were there. I was texting my friends like what are you guys up to i was kind of bored and i was supposed to stay for three nights ended up staying for two uh because like Stephen fox and tj vogel and nathan smith were all staying there different nights so kind of like the camaraderie wasn't there i guess you could say but i mean it was cool like don't get me wrong i uh i'm really good you have to do it it's mm-hmm. just that's part if you play as an amateur like that's you got to do it and i'm glad i did but i i have a lot of people ask me about it and i always tell them like yeah, it was cool, but you know, I could say I did it, but that's about it. All right, last one. Max Homa's Twitter game. Underrated. <laughs> uh, his Twitter game is pretty good. He, I, I, I'll read what he says sometimes and think, oh, that was, that was, he has some pretty strong takes at times, but he's pretty funny. I, I that's one thing with Max, like, uh, Gosh, what was he? he had a good one about the Browns, the NFL team, uh, a couple weeks ago. Something, someone equating the NFL's ratings and Donald Trump and the Browns. And he's and Max is not into politics at all. He says, or whoever the guy was, says, I'm not a politics man, but if you you should watch a Browns game on TV and then think after what you saw, would you pay money to go watch the Browns? Because the picture was. You know, with all the political stuff with the NFL, stadium's empty. But the Browns at this point are like 0 and 9 or 0 and 10 at least. Is would you go and pay to watch that after watching it on TV? It's like that one. That was probably one of his best I've seen in a while. I uh, I get a kick out of some of the stuff he puts on there. I feel like he's at his best when he weighs in on really random subjects. Yeah, he's really into pop culture. I which I. I'm not too well versed in, so I, some of it I feel like I probably miss. But there's always some uh, some off the wall thing that, like, you say it's like an award show or whatever. Like, he doesn't miss a beat. If he he has a pre, has a pretty broad uh, range of content on his Twitter account. Yeah. Um. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, and um, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you play well this week and uh, this season on the web, and and hopefully up on uh, PGA Tour. Next yeah. Year. Thanks, guys. Thanks for yeah, having go me. Go get on. a win this week. That'd be pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Thanks. Stay in your hotel room at night. <laughs> uh, yeah.
Yeah, I'll, I, I will definitely be sleeping before all of my rounds. <laughs> all right, That's man. Good to hear. Thanks. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.